Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Black Menace Podcast. It is me, Rachel Weaver, your host, and our other host, Nate Bird. Happy to be here with y'all. Thank you. Um, okay, so we're going to start with our menace moment today. And for the menace moment today, we are going to highlight one of uh, the past justices, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so, First, what you should know about her is she was born Joan Ruth Bader on March 15th in 1933 in Brooklyn, New York. Um, And really, she talks about her mother instilling a love of education um, in her life. Um, But then she ended up being really academically inclined in high school. She ended up... uh, going to Cornell University and graduated at the top of her class. She graduated in the year 1945. Um, and this is also the same year. I know, top of her class in Cornell in the 50s. In the 50s, yeah. Okay. In the 40s. Oh, right. That's crazy. Right? Exactly. I see why Leslie Nope had the hots for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, and then that same year is also the year that she got married. Um And instead of Ruth Bader, she became Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and her husband's name was Martin. Um, But then after she graduated, she decided to put her um, her education on hold to start a family uh, and had her first child in 1955. And after that, her husband ended up being drafted into the military, and he served for two years. But then after he came back, that's when she decided to go to um, law school, and she went to Harvard Law. No, nothing big. Just... Just Harvard. You know that in the sixties, as a woman. Do we know if it was uh, her decision to to start a family, or was it her decision? I mean, well, she graduated. She got married in nineteen fifty four, and then had a child in nineteen fifty five. A year later, so. Well, I just mean like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's often expected, like in in traditional yeah. relationships, where like the woman is expected to give up her career. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was really like what she wanted to do. Because I mean, she sounds like a like a powerhouse. Like she went to Cornell in the forties when it was like looked down on for women to go to college. You know, so I just wonder. That's interesting, but that's dope. Anyway, I mean, she, we're gonna keep reading. I'm gonna keep telling you more how she's a boss woman. So her husband ended up um, being diagnosed with cancer in 1956. Um, but she also, so so now she's a sick husband, she's in law school, and she has a child. But she continues to maintain her studies um, while being a mother, right, and doing all these things. And um, she was one of nine women in a 500-person class as well. Um, and she said that she encountered lots of d- gender-based discrimination while she was at Harvard. People would tell her that she was taking up a man's spot while she was there. Um, and she served as the first female member of the Harvard Law Review. Wow. Some things never change, huh? Mm-hmm. It was women are taking men's spots. Now it's uh, the browns and the blacks. Are mm-hmm. the it's, it's always somebody taking someone's spot that they believe deserves to be there more than the oppressed group or minority group um but after her husband ended up recovering from the cancer um she graduated from harvard and ended up moving to new york city um and worked at a law firm um and then she ended up transferring um to columbia law to finish out her degree and yeah and she also served on their law review and she graduated in the first of her class at columbia law in 1959 
Isn't that crazy? Columbia Law, that's still one of the top right. law that's, schools today. That's in, that's in D.C., right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no, no. Columbia's in New York. Oh, that's why okay, she went to right, she moved right. to New York. I'm yeah, in Georgetown. Okay, nice. no, yeah, Georgetown that's, is in DC. Also, a really good law school. Yeah. Um, and Columbia. Right, just no. exactly, and Ooh. being um, one of nine at Harvard. I don't know what she was at Columbia, but crazy. Uh, so she talked about um, how even though she was very academically inclined and was an exceptional student. She still experienced a lot of gender-based discrimination while she worked. Um, and she had a lot of difficulties finding a job after she graduated from Columbia. Um, but a Columbia law professor um, recommended her uh, to a U.S. judge, um, and they ended up hiring her as a clerk, which helped her career move forward. Um, she also ended up accepting a position as a law professor at Rutgers University in 1963, um, and she held that position um, until she accepted a position to teach at Columbia Law School in 1972, and she was the first woman to get tenured at Columbia Law. Okay, she's just a boss. Everything is, she's just the first, the first. Um, also, it's disgusting that she graduated from Columbia University and the only job she could get was as a law clerk. Because, mm-hmm. anyway. Top of her class. Like, now today, if you graduate top of Columbia, right. you you can get any job you want. Any yeah, big exactly. law firm, they're, they're, they're fiending for you. They basically hired her as a law secretary. Mm-hmm. That's so messed up. And, and she talks about... She talks about all the gender discrimination she experienced. Um, when she worked at Rutgers, she had to hide her pregnancy from her colleagues so that she wasn't discriminated against even further for possibly losing her job or something of that nature. And then she ended up serving on the U.S. Courts of Appeals for 13 years in D.C., um, which led to, uh, to her you know, being on the Supreme Court. Um, and then also one of her big things that she's known for is she ended up writing the majority opinion in USV Virginia in 1996, um, which was holding that qualified women could not be denied admission into Virginia Military Institute. So she was very um, influential on a lot of, she's an inspiration to many law students who are women and women in um, the law field and also just being the first of so many things and standing up for gender discrimination um, just in her existence and in her positions that she held, but also in the laws that she fought to change. Mm-hmm. No, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't she also like a big driving force behind Roe v. Wade? I don't know because um, I don't know her backstory that well, but based on what I read, yes. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that like eight men were thinking much about women's rights back when that was approved. So she was very influential for um, gender... Um, rights being passed in the United States, not just for women, but also for men, because I feel like whenever we talk about gender equality, we always think about women. And definitely, yes, like women need more equity, but also a lot of policies are not centered around equity for men either, too. Um, and she fought for that as well, which I like, guess is important to know. Good on her. What a powerhouse. Right? That's why when she passed away, it was so um, monumental because of how influential she was. And um, she was a silent killer, you know. She's the kind of woman who will walk in a room, at least from what I've seen and read about her, that she just she's not gonna brag about her accomplishments and what she's done. But when you read her biography or read just like her CV, you're like, dang, this woman is legit and she is powerful. But um, she wasn't gonna brag about that when she saw you. She just acted. 
which I need to take a note in a little bit. So <laughs> she inspires me for sure. Interesting. Wow, that is fascinating. I did not, I'll be honest, I didn't know pretty much anything about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, except that she was a Supreme Court justice. So Yeah. That's dope. Uh, yes. So let's get into today's podcast episode. So we're going to read one of the questions that we got. And Nate, do you want to go ahead and read that and Absolutely. take us away? All right. So this question comes from one of our wonderful listeners, as all of them do. Um, they say, uh, so basically the question is, is it offensive when white people wear their hair in dreadlocks? I have a family member who insists it's fine and she gets them regularly. She lives in Utah. Uh, this person lives in California. And from what this is, I live in California. And from what I've heard and seen, it is not appropriate at all. When I mentioned it to her, she told me that the black people she knows don't have a problem with it. I have a hard time believing this. What's your take? This is kind of a difficult question, honestly. And we actually made a Black Menace video about this, asking people what they thought. Um, yeah, Nate, do you want to start us or do you want me to start? Ooh, I could start. Yeah, go ahead. So on this issue, I am firmly on the side of no. Okay. Same. <laughs> uh, if you are watching the video episode of this podcast or if you've watched any of our TikTok videos, then you know that I have locks, right? Um, that's another thing. They're called locks, not dreadlocks. Dread, like the word dread was kind of attached because it was, anyway, there's like racism and, and white supremacy rooted into that as well. But they're just locks because our hair locks up naturally. Um, if I didn't comb my hair, if I just let it do its thing, it would do this naturally. Now, obviously, I've gotten it like manicured a little bit, but um, this is what black people's hair does naturally just without us trying. Um, so when white people wear locks, it um, it's not something that comes naturally. It's something that they have to manufacture for their hair to do. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of it. But even more importantly than that, it's more so about the history behind it, mm -hmm. right? Because, uh, you know, even right now in Utah, they're still trying to pass something called the Crown Act. They've been trying to pass it for three years and it keeps getting struck down mm -hmm. by uh, conservatives in, in Utah Congress. Um, but basically, the Crown Act prevents the discrimination uh, against black women who wear their hair in natural hairstyles. Um, and this is something, you know, it's been signed into to law in some states and, and not in other states. Um, but basically, it just prevents black women from being discriminated against for how their hair grows naturally. Mm -hmm. If you go back, if you ever watch an old TV show, like a black and white TV show from the 50s, or if you ever see pictures of black women from the 50s, 60s, uh, you'll see that a lot of them had their hair straightened mm -hmm. um, or, or worn in a certain way. And the same with black men. They had their hair, you know, coiffed or they had it in the conch style, which is where it was real straight and shiny and, and things like that. And, you know, while that was partially style, um, it was also done because they weren't allowed to wear their natural hair mm -hmm. without being discriminated against. A black woman literally could not get a job unless they wore their hair like a white woman wore it. And so they had to change the way that their hair looked in order to be able to work and provide for their families mm -hmm. and for their children and for themselves. And then, you know, that continued on for a very long time until people started recognizing, hey, this is not right. Um, and even now it continues, which is why they're still trying to sign that into law here in Utah. Um, people are still being discriminated against for their natural hair. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's becoming slightly more acceptable. But I mean, even in the 90s, 
uh, you could be denied a job for wearing braids because mm-hmm. they were unprofessional. Same with locks. It's considered unprofessional or, yeah. or unseemly. And I'd say dreadlocks or locks, sorry, are still stigmatized to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, they, mm-hmm. I, I would say that hairstyle is the most stigmatized in the black community, especially among men. Yeah, I was more than women. I agree. I was talking to a friend who, um, his family is from the islands, and uh, they, he wanted to get locks, but his family didn't want him to get locks because they didn't want him to seem um, like a Rasta, which. Um, yeah, you know, Rasta is Rastafarianism is a Jamaican or it's it's a a religion that has roots in Jamaica and then also Africa. Yeah. Um, and a, a big part of Rastafarianism is the use of marijuana for meditation and things mm-hmm. like that. So people associate that with that. They'll associate yep. people like that. And then they also associate it with, um, you know, just the negative aspects of blackness. But, yeah. Um, well, because yeah. even just a couple of years ago, Zendaya wore, you know. They're not real locks. Like black women, a lot of times we can, there's a new hairstyle that you can get. Not new and newer compared to like box braids, but um, you can get a hairstyle that makes it look like you have dreads for a period of time, right? Same way with braids. And um, a commentator on E! News, when they were commenting on their her hair, I don't know if you knew about this, but she said that she smelled like some type of oil. She was making a negative comment about the way her hair looked because she had dreadlocks or locks. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she smells like some type of oil insinuating that I don't know what, like it was racially motivated, obviously like yeah. saying like, it wasn't like shave oil or something. It was just something that I was like, you should not say that girl on national TV. And she was caught and she got so much flack because she, it was literally just because she was wearing dreadlocks. And if you know Zendaya, Zendaya is also a very light-skinned black woman. Right. So she she doesn't even look like a Rasta or anybody. I mean, not that it's a specific look, but stereotypically, it's like, what are you saying? So the fact that a famous person could even still have um, inappropriate comments made towards them right, right. for that. Which normally we feel like famous people are exempt because they kind of get to just do whatever they want with the mm-hmm. way they look and no one can say anything. But no, it's still... Like people still have stuff to say about it. Yeah, I didn't know that, but I mean, yeah, that yeah. goes right into like the history aspect mm-hmm. because it's you know because black people have been discriminated against for so long for just having for just being who they are. Yep, and some of you should know a lot about that, right? Um, just for being who they are, for their hair growing the way that it grows, literally against. So for a white person to come in and say, "Oh, I want to do that." And then they get to be accepted or it's, mm-hmm. it's considered okay or, oh, this is fine for them to do. Um, you know, a white person can get locks and go into a workplace and not face discrimination. But that's not guaranteed for a black person, right? So there's the history behind it as well that makes it not okay. It's not just the look itself. It's also the history behind that look. And I think that's a lot of a lot of times something we don't look at. But yeah. anyway, that's all I got. No, I 100% agree with you, Nate. I think that that's my thing. Until black women and black men are not discriminated against for the way they choose to wear their hair, I do not think other races should be able to dip their toe into what is cultural to us also. I think that it's not just the history of the negative aspects, but the cultural understanding of the positive aspects of what hair means to black people. Hair to black women in particular, it's it's more than just, oh, I got my hair done. And um, I learned this as I began having more friends from different ethnic backgrounds. The black Hair is sacred to black women. Um, braids, if we choose to do dreadlocks, shaving our head. It is, it's emotional. It's spiritual. There's so much that is behind the way that our hair looks to people. 
most of my black girlfriends, if their hair is not done, they are not going out. They're not going anywhere, mm-hmm. you know? And if your friends are black women, you know, this, if our hair is not done, if we don't like the way it looks, we are not moving. Um, and it's always been that way. Like yes. Back to our roots in Africa. Like yes. Slavery. Hair has always exactly. been an essential part of, of like black culture and black spiritualism. Yes. And so for me, I'm like, you don't, when you put braids in your hair, when you put dreads in your hair, you don't understand that. You don't understand that aspect that getting braids is more than just, oh, this is cute and fun. Like, this is what black people have to do to keep their, to maintain their hair, to keep it healthy. Um and so for me, I find it extremely disrespectful because most of the time, most people who do any types of styles like that, like they don't understand or know that. And I think that's the hardest part for me is when I see that, I'm like, how much do you understand about what that means for me as a black woman? And also like you did it because it's fun. Most people that I've seen that have dreads that are not black or braids or whatever it may be, it's because they thought it was cute. Mm-hmm. or they think it's fun and it's different. But for me, I'm like, it's not because it's fun and it's different. Like this is a way to protect my hair. And like Nate was talking about, I can still experience discrimination because of that. And so until that is changed, um, I'm never going to be in favor of somebody wearing a hairstyle that is traditionally found upon black people. Um, Now, if somebody has Afro textured hair or curly hair and they're not a black person, that's where we get in a different type of water. Because I don't know if you've seen that, but like that's where we get into murky water because it is also a protective style for people with curly hair and like that is beneficial for them but at the same time i'm like we still have the aspect of blackness tied into it that we need to acknowledge and if you can't have that conversation then i'm gonna look at you funny because there are some people i'm not let me just i'm not gonna say there are some people who have black in them a quarter or more or less whatever but their hair is not afro textured and they wear braids and i personally have a problem with that because what are you wearing braids for? What is the What is it? What does it do for you? Because in reality, if you don't have curly hair, like there are white people who have co- coily hair, and they could wear more than these some other people who have straight hair. What does it do for you? Like if anything, it's harder for your hair actually because your hair is straight. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, don't get me going. But yeah. it's a protective <laughs> hairstyle. It's not yes. just for fashion. It's to protect right. our hair. Yeah. Multi-layered. Mm-hmm. multi-layered. Um, if you don't understand that, then you're inserting yourself into a conversation, into a culture that you mm-hmm. know nothing about. And that's just not cool. Yeah. Right? And that's why when I see people who are non-black but have textured hair, I'm like, okay, I'll give you a pass. Because it is, it can be protective for them. Because mm-hmm. it still protects their hair. But at the same time, I'm like, how much do you understand about the blackness aspect of this? Mm, if you don't understand that, then I'm kind of looking at you like you're goofy. But, but like the person said, it's black people have different opinions about this i know some mm-hmm. black people who do not care i know some black people who are like it's cool like a white person can wear whatever hairstyle they want and it doesn't bother them yeah um and the second half of the question she said that her friend or relative knows black people who said that it's okay which is probably true yes it's probably true um you're gonna find differing opinions anywhere i think the problem with that though is that these people that your friend knows probably um they probably subscribe to a certain i don't even know how to say it they, i know go ahead nate just say it rough just they, say it they subscribe to a certain uh just certain type of behavior mm-hmm. that uh contradicts with with the black experience right um if if you've got i don't know if she has multiple black people that are telling her that it's okay for her to wear her hair like that that means that she has specifically chosen those black people to be around her 
because they make her feel safe. I highly doubt that she has gone into the recesses of black Twitter and said, hey, can I wear these? I doubt that she's gone to find um, a black woman who does hair or a black woman who has braids and say, hey, can I wear my hair like yours? Um, you know, I think that it's very easy to surround yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear. Yep. And you're going to find that in any community. Um, and you're going to find that in the black community too. You know, there are there are plenty of people who, who love what we're doing. And then there are plenty of people who disagree with, with what we're doing um, for for whatever reason, mm-hmm. think that we're, you know, a hindrance or what have you. And it, it goes both ways, right? Um, I think that it, uh, you know, there's different experiences that people live, but I think also at some point there's a certain amount of denial that goes into uh, the things that people admit, the things that people say. So the, the black people that this person knows that are telling her that it's okay, I think that they're denying a part of themselves to mm-hmm. abuse her. And I think that's where the issue comes in. And I also think we have to pay attention to where are these black people from? What, what have they been surrounded by? And, and what is their relation to blackness? Not that we're invalidating anybody's experience with blackness or what it means to them, but we have to be honest about that so we can understand why they're saying what they're saying, right? Because if this person is from Utah, which that's what it sounded like, right? Or did yeah, I make that assumption? They live in Utah. So these black people that they're talking to, are they also from Utah? Were they adopted by white people? Do they have they surrounded themselves with people in the black community? What has their experience with blackness? At least me moving to Utah, I have seen that the ex- people's experience with blackness varies so much in this state that when you understand that, it kind of helps you understand why people might think the way they do. And like Nate was saying, if they have been socialized around more whiteness and around less blackness, they may not feel the way that me or Nate does about it because they haven't been around blackness in the same way that I do if they were the only black person at their school or the only black person in their friend group and didn't really interact with black people at that degree it might not bother them because the way that they understood their blackness was different than the way that me and Nate have experienced our blackness up to this point yeah and that that experience evolves I think that's another Mm -hmm. thing too that people don't realize so to just kind of put it out there um white people we love you if you hear something that troubles you about the black experience, if you hear something that makes you uncomfortable about the black experience, if you hear facts or statistics um, that indicate racism or, or disparities um, between minority populations and white populations, and then you see someone else uh, saying that those things don't exist or that they are not real and that person is a person of color or a black person, um, that's okay. But you have to realize that you can choose to sit in the truth or you can choose to be uncomfortable or, or you can choose to uh, you can choose to sit in the truth or you can choose to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you're always going to be able to find someone uh, who is willing to make you comfortable, who's willing to tell you what mm-hmm. you want to hear. There's always going to be a, a, a person who denies facts, who denies evidence yep. uh, for the sake of, of making themselves and other people feel better. And that's really just. I mean, that's reality. You're going to find that in any situation, you know, for people who are in the queer community, mm-hmm. you're always going to find uh, people, you know, say, say you're in the, the, the LDS LGBTQ yep. uh, community. Um, you're going to find people who are members of the LGBT community who are also devout members of the LDS faith and who will swear up and down that um, it's, uh, you know, that celibacy is the way for them to go um, in the black community. You're going to find people who say that racism doesn't exist. Or that 
um, you know, discrimination and things like that are not really real issues, that they're things of the past. You're always going to be able to find someone who will make you feel comfortable, mm-hmm. or who will take away that guilt. Yep. However, there are certain realities that cannot be denied. Yep. And, and that's what me and Nate wanted to talk about to do today as well is, um, personally, I have found it really frustrating, more so recently, the, um, the voices of these other people who are, you know, black or other minorities, other people of color, and they say things, right, that make white people comfortable. They, they perpetuate the narrative that there isn't an issue. They don't support what we do with black menaces or um, they don't support black people in general who speak out about these things. And I find that so frustrating because it undermines what we are trying to do and work so hard for. And it's more frustrating than it coming from a white person, right? Because, you know, a white person, we can like put it on like, okay, well, they just refuse, they feel attacked, all these things. But when it's other black people, it's really hard for me because I know that at some point they they are denying, like Nate said, some part of themselves or they have had to internalize racism to some degree to feel comfortable amongst the uncomfortability that they have felt, Mm -hmm. right? They have felt so uncomfortable that they're like, you know what? I'd rather just ignore what is happening to me. I'd rather um, ignore the comments that this person has made or... um, Deny the truth. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in order to strive towards some type of acceptance amongst white people which is crazy to me because i'm like you will never be fully accepted like to me i'm always like you can continue to say that but you will always be a black man to them you will always be the black husband or the black wife or whatever it may be like you will never fully subscribe to this ideal of whiteness mormonism um when you act like that and it is so frustrating to me because these people really work tirelessly against what we have to say and oh my gosh, it just makes my blood boil. You know what blows my mind is the people that are out here bad mouthing us, talking negatively about us, saying things like we're aggressive or we are uh, speaking out against the church or speaking out against, um, you know, or we, putting the church down, putting the church down or, or putting white people down, things like that. You know, what's crazy. We don't say anything. We just ask questions. We ask people questions. And then they answer the question. And then what do we say after every single one? That's it. Cool. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Period. Per. We don't say, like, we don't say anything. We don't argue with people. And that's why people feel so comfortable asking or answering questions in front of us, regardless of what their answer is, is because we make them feel safe. So for those people that are saying that, like, we are coercing people or forcing people, bizarre, because we don't do that. As a matter of fact, this was filmed today, just so you can get an idea. Okay, so this is before every video. We don't include this in the video because we are trying to keep it under a certain period of time. But check this out. Listen, this is what we do every single time. If people are unsure, we give them the option to back out. So are you good with being filmed for TikTok? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. You, you I can am. say no. I am. I'm okay, not. perfect. Sounds good. So. Okay, you hear that? Mm-hmm. Are you good with being filmed for TikTok? I think so. Are you sure you can say no? Like we give them multiple outs. People like the people who answer our video, our questions, they do so because they want to, not because they were forced into it. And we have plenty of people say no because we give them that option. Yeah. So, you know. And we, I don't know. I just find it extremely frustrating because people in the church in particular, I saw this girl who's no longer part of the church explain why people in the church get so upset when people comment about things in the church and they feel as though their identity is so 
attached to being a member of the church Mm -hmm. that when you say something about the institution that they feel so attached to, they feel like it's a personal attack. Mm -hmm. When you say, oh, the church is not perfect and it's doing this wrong, they feel like you're talking about them. And so they get extremely defensive. And what I don't understand when other black people act like that is, I don't know what experience they're having. I, I really am truly confused. And again, every per- black person's experience is different, but black people in particular, when they are like, I don't see that. And I've never experienced that. I, I really look confused at them and I'm puzzled because I think all of us, at least on the black menace team, what we've talked about, we have all tried our best to not read into things, to say, second guess ourselves, to question what has happened or negative experiences that we've had and not try to make them be bad. But at the end of the day, we feel like we're denying uh, something about our experience or ourselves when we don't fully accept what has happened and what really went down, went down. Um, and so I'm really, I- I'm, I'm baffled and I'm puzzled of what experience these people are having that they have never had that happen to them or they have just interpreted whatever has happened to them up to this point as not that. I will say, I feel like... Because this was me at one point. I overlooked a lot of things. Yes. In trying to just like find my place in the world. And, you know, wanting to be accepted is very real. Yep. And as a black person, um, for a lot of us, we never truly find acceptance, right? Yeah. Um, For me, I grew up in the suburbs, right? I've said this before. Uh, Predominantly white areas. And, um, you know, I also grew up as a member of the LDS faith. And so, you know, most of the, the quote unquote friends that I had were white. And, um, you know, in, in many ways I was accepted, but in other ways I wasn't. And so I had to kind of tone down the parts of me that mm-hmm. weren't accepted yeah. in order to, to try and fit in more. Because as a young kid, of course, all I wanted was to be accepted. Right. Um, but I was a lot of times the odd man out. I was, um, you know, oftentimes I got picked on or singled out in ways that maybe some other kids didn't. And I had to learn to deal with that in a certain way. Um, and sometimes that, that in, involved me suppressing parts of myself in mm-hmm. order to, to better fit, I guess, the ideal uh, of, of what was or what was considered ideal in, in the culture and the society that I was in. Um, same thing. That's why I came to BYU, you know, yeah. because that was part of the ideal. That was part of the dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, then getting to BYU, I specifically remember getting here and feeling like I didn't fit in and making the decision. I remember saying this specifically. I was like, I'm going to reinvent myself. And what I didn't realize is that that meant assimilate. I thought I was just reinventing, becoming a new person. What I was really mm-hmm. trying to do was trying to cut out the parts of me that weren't acceptable yeah. and try and make myself into someone that was acceptable mm. you know, to the BYU population. Yeah. So and I think we've all done that to some degree. I mean, maybe not everybody, but I, I know a lot of black people who are part of the church or who are in majority white areas, not just our church. But if you're in any majority white area, you experience that because I experienced that coming home from my mission. I literally told myself, like, okay, well, obviously all these negative experiences that I've had, like, I've had a great time on my mission, but it's because I strayed away from anything that made me different. I just, like, was, no, I just tried to make myself be a missionary, right? Like, nothing else, not the black missionary, just a missionary, and I didn't have as many conflicts. So I was like, well, maybe it's my fault. I was like, maybe everything that's negative that's happened to me at BYU or even in the church, like, has to do with because I've tried to define myself by being black too much. But then I came home and I'm like, no, I tried it for a little bit and it just did not work. And I was like, this is not me. This does not feel right. And then I saw the truth, right? That like, it wasn't because of that. It's because this institution 
actually has issues and that's a hard place to be and i guess other black people or other people of color don't want to accept that because that's a hard reality like being in this space that nate and i are in and even some people on the team like it's a hard place to be to realize that doctrinally sometimes there are these awesome things that you love about the church but then culturally and sometimes doctrinally there are things that do not add up with who you are and who you want to be that is like it's so much pain and it's a cognitive dissonance that i don't recommend to anyone so i understand why people are don't want to get to that point but at the same time for them to fight so hard against us i'm like i'm not even going to go off with some of the things i want to say but yeah, there's some. I mean, there comes there comes a point where you either have to address the issues and the, like the things that you're facing. You either have to address the racism or you have to repress it. And mm-hmm. So you see, you see two sides, right? You see, uh, you see people like I don't even know Taraja, Taraja Burke, Tarana Burke, Tarana Burke. She's the founder of Black Lives Matter, I believe, or one of the founders. I could be getting that completely wrong. She might be the founder of the Me Too movement. I think she's the founder of the Me Too movement. Anyway, you either get your Tarana Burks or your Candace Owens, mm. right? One decided to face reality and say, okay, this is a serious problem. I'm going to do something to address it. The other one decided to uh, repress reality and say, okay, none of this exists. I'm going to speak out about this and say that it doesn't exist, right? So you're going to get both sides. Um, so just be aware that if you know if you do have black friends, um, be aware that they may still be figuring out uh, where they stand or they may mm-hmm. have already decided where they stand. And maybe you need to uh, seek out more black friends to enhance mm-hmm. that opinion, that experience. And I, I would recommend that anyway. Don't just have one black friend. And please yeah. don't tell me about your one black one friend. One black friend. I said, I you can say the N-word. No. Every single companion on my mission that I had. So, you know, as a missionary, you are always with a companion, like your teaching companion. and You do everything together. And every single one of them would always tell me about the black person that they knew at their school in Utah or, uh, you know, the, the, the Mexican person that they knew at their school or that they went to church with. And I'm just like, look, just because I am the only black person you've ever like interacted on in the close basis with doesn't mean you have to tell me about the other black person that you saw in the hallway once. You know? So just have more black friends. Talk to lots of black people. Talk yeah. to lots of all kinds of people. And make sure that you have a full understanding of the big picture. Right? Yeah. Don't just accept one person's opinion. And that's what we do. Right? Yeah. That's what we ask everybody. And we don't say this to say that all black people think the same. But mm-hmm. um, as someone who I feel like I, since coming to college, I've encountered a lot of different types of black people, international, mm-hmm. people with immigrant parents, people who weren't born in the U.S., like people who from suburbs, rural city everything all black people don't think the same and we have different opinions different experiences but at the same time most black people do have a collective understanding about certain things and even across like immigrant lines language lines like um upbringing lines all black people that i've met who understand what racism is like they have the same feeling and opinions about those types of things like the nooks and crannies and details might be different in how they understand and interpret but their overall feeling is the same and to me that has really been defined by who they surround themselves with um other black people who are on the same page about things normally hang out with other black people those aren't their only friends necessarily i'm not saying those they're their only friends but they are not afraid to surround themselves with other black people to me, the marker, like when Nate was saying have friends that are more than just one black friend, if they have no other black friends, 
that's a red flag to me personally because why are you not friends with other people that look like you granted in utah it's hard you might not have the numbers blah 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 but if they have never in their life been close with another black person, this sound this might be a controversial opinion, but this is just how I feel. If you have never been close to another black person, not that you need a ton, not that you need a whole friend group, but at least just one other person that you see them rocking with every now and then or talking to, normally they have internalized racism to some degree that they want to be the only black person in the spaces that they're in. That's my hot take. And the experience there is, is very different. Is very yes. Altered, you know? Yeah, Not to say that it isn't valid, but it is very different. Yes. And so just always seek out multiple experiences. Because the black people that I've met here at B- BYU and in Utah, they are the singular black friend in their friend group. The only, on purpose. Mm-hmm. And they continue to do that. Like, they see us, they walk away. Mm-hmm. Or won't make eye contact. Sometimes, I've never I'm experienced campus, that till here. I will purposefully stare at a black person Me too. that's walking and to see if they'll make eye contact. I mean, I'm talking like 30 seconds, which yeah. is hard just staring right and uh they won't look at me at all they'll actually like, go out of their way to avoid looking at me and then sometimes i'll be like hello how are you hi <laughs> and then they'll like you know look at me really quickly and say or sometimes i'll just kind of let it pass and walk past mm-hmm. but um i think if you are you know yeah i'll just leave it at that just just seek out different experiences mm-hmm. and and i say this because i've experienced in the sense of i don't know what it is about my aura It's not my mouth, like what I say, but it's my aura or my look. I don't know. I'd be attracting black men who have never liked black women. And (laughs) stop. I'm for real. I'd be the first black girl they got with, okay? And they black. They got to ease their way into No, I guess they color-wise, huh? Or whatever. I don't know. I don't know because I'm pretty liberal in my views. So they be be kind of messing up. Anyway, I say this to say I've had a lot of conversations with black people who they have just started becoming friends with black people and none of this bad. Again, this sounds so judgmental. This is not me being judgmental. This is just my observation. Um, it is that way for a reason. And most of the time it's because they're insecure from what the conversations that I've had and they're insecure for different reasons, whatever. Um, but some people let that insecurity drive them to learn more. Like again, the black men that have dated me or tried to date me or talk to me, they are coming out of that insecurity and trying to learn more and, not let the insecurity drive their actions, but others want to stay in that insecurity. And so when you're insecure, you overcompensate by really driving that you're black in the friend group. Mm. Mm. And you, you know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. Nate. Yeah, so. yeah, I get what you mean. And there's different stages of racial development, right? There's Yeah, we should link that somewhere. Our, yeah. The thing, because that's really good, mm-hmm. actually. Actually, yeah, we'll link that in the in the description for this podcast. We'll put the link to the five stages of racial development. It's very good. But, um, yeah, you just got to realize that, you know, just as we develop from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, um, you know, in the way like the ways we develop physically, biologically, all of that, we also develop mentally. And for people mm-hmm. of color... There's an additional layer, an additional layer of development um, that has to do specifically with race. And, um, you know, it takes time. Every every single process is different. Just kind of like, um, you know, there are going to be some people who are at different stages of that. But just to kind of briefly summarize, there's a stage where you're completely unaware uh, of any kind of racial bias, racial issues, racial discrimination. And there's another stage where you start to become aware um, and then there's an assimilation stage that's kind of mm-hmm. attached to that where, you know, you start to become aware of these, these racial, uh, divides and you start to say, okay, well, how can I fit in 
or how can I breach this divide? And so there's a stage of assimilation and there's a stage of kind of breaking away from that. And uh, then once you break away from that, it's often attached to anger um, having to do with with racial issues. So, you know, there may be separation. There may be um, uh, surrounding yourself with symbols and things like that. So like for me, part of that that stage for me, I, I don't remember the exact name of the stage, but you can call it the angry stage. I bought a whole bunch of like corny t-shirts and like African necklaces <laughs> and like, you know, I bought a shirt that said, that had a fist on it that said, make racist afraid again. It was like a wish.com shirt. <laughs> and so they forgot the S on I'm racist. Crying. And so it said, make racist afraid again. I, when I tell you I seen that shirt, I never wore it at the house. It was so tacky. But anyway, um, that was part of my age. Yeah, that's stage, part of the right? stage. Yeah, and so for parents who have, you know, adopted black children, white parents who adopted black children, yeah, this is important. Be aware that this is something that they will go through at some point. So when you see your children start to get angry, it'll feel like the I hate white people stage, right? Exactly. Which we that's, all black people do kind of go through that stage. Yeah, if I'm gonna be honest, that's basically what it is. Yeah, and then once you pass that, I like the mm-hmm. quote unquote I hate white people stage, where you're just like angry and you're trying to figure out why things are the way they mm-hmm. are. Then you kind of move into a space where it's like, okay, that was a lot. A lot. <laughs> you look back yeah. and you're like, I did a lot. You're like, okay, now I need to tone it back and <laughs> no, figure for out real. what I need to do to just kind of like sit in this, right? Yeah. So then you've got that stage where you're figuring things out. You can start to surround yourself with uh, people who, uh, you know, are outside of your worldview. And then there's a stage where you start to actually like give back to the community and things yeah. like that. So, you know, you've got like... I feel so, like that's the stage we're at. Yeah. I guess I call that like the Dr. King stage, right? The Martin yeah. Luther King stage. That's where you start to like actually like stuff so yeah the black menaces we've all reached that quote-unquote dr king stage we passed the angry stage that's why we're not arguing with people anymore we're just asking questions. yeah and that's why like mm-hmm. i don't know kanithi and i we talked about this one time like that's why we felt comfortable enough to date white men in the past because we're the stage where like i'm comfortable enough in who i am that like yeah i don't know if that makes sense we're that's an example of you feel so comfortable with yourself that like you don't feel like your partner defines your blackness because some people at a certain point like I'm not gonna say it. I'm gonna say some people will date certain people because they not necessarily even because they want to, but they they feel like it would define their. Anywho, let me just mm-hmm. yeah. And some people do get yeah. stuck in the stages of racial development. So yeah, you, for mean, a long time. Yeah, people will get stuck, and sometimes they may not ever come out of that. Sometimes it may take something uh, severe for them to be jarred out of that. For example, I have a friend who uh, swore up and down that. Uh, that racism wasn't really as big of an issue as we thought it was. Mm. Discrimination wasn't as big of an issue. And then he got called the N-word mm. on campus. And after that, all of a sudden, he was very, very, um, he was a different person. He changed from that moment on and he, uh, you know, he became much more of an activist, much more of a, a person who was passionate about black issues. Yeah. Um, and I have multiple, you know, friends and acquaintances who have been through something similar. So sometimes you come out of those stages Sometimes you don't, but just be aware that we're all in varying stages and that there is an additional stage of racial development that people mm-hmm. of color go through. Yeah. Y'all are learning a lot today. Yeah, this, what we talked about today, I feel like these are sometimes conversations for black people about black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain things that I don't necessarily think that white people 
need to necessarily have an opinion on like they should just listen and like understand or sometimes there are conversations that we don't have with white people so i'm actually kind of glad that we got to talk about this today on the podcast because this is one of those categories that i think you know black people need to talk about amongst themselves and doesn't really involve white people because it doesn't involve white people or really what you're understanding and so bringing you in though today um our for our white listeners who are listening or even non-black people who are listening this is understanding so that when you interact different types of interact with different types of black people you can understand kind of what's going on behind the scenes of why they may be saying what they're saying or why certain people aren't saying certain things. Yeah, this is a conversation that most white people are not privy to. This is a conversation that we have as black people all yep, the time. All the time. All the time. And this is not a conversation that white people are normally privy to because we're, we're too busy focusing on yep. uh, much more simple things. I guess. Yeah. Um, well, it's too, sometimes it's too much. I yeah, think like, mm-hmm. They're trying to figure out how do they approach their... They're trying to figure out how they make black friends. Right. <laughs> they're trying to figure out what to say to a black person <laughs> exactly, when they interact exactly, with them yeah. and not offend them rather than, okay, well, now let's talk about how black people are on different racial stages, different development stages of their racial identity and mm-hmm. how this experience for this black person can internalize racism for them this way and it'll internalize it for this way for another person. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Don't even get us started on why some people don't date black women. For this exact, this whole situation <laughs> right here, this leads to others Woo! not wanting to date people that look like them because they do not want to reproduce children that look like them. Yeah, and that that's internalized racism and things like that. That's another and podcast episode. A whole another podcast, right? <laughs> but um, you know, if you you know, obviously, if you have um, the more basic questions, keep them coming. We Black love those Men- too. Black Menaces Podcast at Gmail dot com. But also, if you have some behind-the-scenes questions, questions that you might be afraid to ask, please ask us those questions, and uh, we'll decide whether or not we want to answer them. But yes. <laughs> at least we'll have them there to answer them. So please, send us your emails, blackmenacespodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And share with us your menace moments as well with that email of ways that you are being a menace um, in your life so we can highlight that here on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, you know, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram. We don't have TikTok. a Facebook. I don't know why I almost said Facebook. <laughs> it's on Facebook anymore. Yeah, follow us on all the, the socials and uh, send us those emails. And, mm-hmm. and don't forget to subscribe to the Patreon oh, for yeah. exclusive content. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you want to hear uh, Rachel, or not Rachel, if you want to hear Kylie and Sebastian talk about their uh, status in the church, if you want to hear me and Rachel eventually talk about our status in the church, yes. subscribe to the Minute Society on Patreon and yep. we'll let you know. Yep. that's it thank you guys thanks for listening to this conversation and don't forget always be a menace and we'll talk to you guys next week thank you peace